Hey everyone, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and on today's episode, we are continuing our discussion of the top 15 existential crises of audio engineers. My goal with these episodes is to have a discussion about some of these big life-altering questions like, will I ever make consistent money? Should I move to a bigger music city? How do I know if I'm ready to go full-time? How come my mixes still don't sound like the pros? These are all questions that I have asked myself and questions that many of you have sent to me, so I wanted to make these episodes to have a discussion about these topics. Now, I may not have perfect answers for all of them, but at the very least, I can share some stories and insights and hopefully help you feel a little bit less alone and a little bit more seen on this path. So without further ado, let's continue on our list. Number nine, when do I know if I'm ready to go full time? This one's difficult because so much of it comes down to personal situations, cost of living, or even just risk tolerance. But I'll tell you how this crisis went for me. I was 20 years old, I was in college, and I was just trying to record as much as I possibly could. I wasn't making great money, but I was making money. I was also interning at a local commercial studio. I was gigging. I was doing a little bit of substitute teaching. And I was also a full-time student at college. I remember having a meeting with a counselor at the college and she was like, you know, you should really consider doing some extracurricular activities. It looks really good on your transcript. And when I told her I didn't have time, I'll never forget. She she was like, well, I mean, you don't have a job, right? And I was like, uh, yes, I, I kind of have three jobs. <laughs> and uh, she was like, oh, uh, well, most of our students don't have jobs. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, you know, at this time, I was also about to propose to my girlfriend and move out of my parents' house. I talked to my dad, who has always been good with money, and asked him if he could help me, you know, look at the books and help me come up with some kind of budget for the situation I was about to get myself into. And he said, sure. So my dad looked at the books and very bluntly was like, this is not enough. Like, you probably need to make at least X to make this viable. And I had never lived on my own before, so I didn't know, for example, what the average electric bill in my area costs. I didn't know what rent would really look like for different areas of the city or different neighborhoods or what a mortgage would look like for someone with my credit. I was really just clueless at this point. Now, thankfully, I had virtually no debt as I was going to school on scholarships, and all of the gear I had up to this point I basically purchased with money that I made from recording. I'd been living at home during the first few years of school and working a lot. I just wasn't making that much money. However, I had zero doubt in my mind that this was what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to make records, I knew that I could be good at it, and that I would continue to get better. I knew how much time I put into recording and how much money I currently made. Eventually, I came to the conclusion that if I were to quit school and go full-time, then I may be able to make enough money to survive. School took up a lot of my time, and it was during the day, three days a week, not including any studying or projects or papers. So if I quit school, then I could do recording stuff all day long, which meant that I would get better and get better faster and be able to work on more projects and make more money. So that's what I did. And thankfully, my parents were both very supportive of this decision. I know a lot of people whose parents probably would have disowned them for dropping out of a private college that they were attending on scholarships, right? But my parents didn't. In fact, they let me keep the studio set up at their house for a few more years until I could figure out how to finance my own building. 
Since all the kids were out of the house and both my parents have full-time jobs, they weren't even at their house during the day, so it kind of worked out. I could work on stuff during the day, and then I would be leaving right about the time that my parents would get home. So what were the results? Well, long story short, I was right. Going full-time meant I could spend all of my time doing recording, and that meant I could get better and work on more stuff and make more money, and I did. The year I went full-time, my income increased by about 30%, and after a year of being full-time, it increased another 40%. In fact, those were my two biggest years of growth ever. I can prove this. I have kept track of my money this whole time, so I can prove that those were my two biggest years of growth ever. I haven't gotten that much growth in business until I hired my assistant 10 years later. So I think maybe the lesson that I learned here is that time is really valuable. The more time you devote to something, generally speaking, the better it will get and the better you will get. And yes, the more money you can make. Now, in the case of hiring my assistant, the issue was that I didn't have any more of my time to give. So instead, I hired someone to give their time in parallel with mine, allowing me to get more things done and do so more efficiently. In both cases, the causal relationship is virtually the same, right? More time put into the job equals more things get done in less time, and you can make more money. And if you don't have that time for yourself, then your only options are make more time or pay someone for their time. So let's get back to the crisis. When do you know is the right time to go full-time? Practically speaking, I wouldn't recommend trying to go full-time right away unless you just have a lot of money and can afford it. I think it's dangerous to go full-time and just expect the money to start flowing immediately. Again, this is a reputation-based, experience-based industry. So you have to take it slow at first. You have to build up a reputation and build up experience. You can't generally just start right out of the gate with it. So even if you do have a ton of money, it doesn't mean anyone trusts you with their music. Even if you have the fanciest studio in the world, and I've seen it happen time and time again in my city and other cities from clients and friends, some big fancy studio will go into town and nobody trusts them yet. Right? So they won't just be piling into the doors trying to record because there's not a trust relationship built there yet. So it's to your benefit to actually start slow and start small. I would say start recording people, start building up your clientele, and yes, start charging for it. I wouldn't do stuff for free very long. Maybe just a few projects early on to get the ball rolling, just to have something to show for it. But I'd start charging for stuff as soon as you are able. Even if you think, well, I have a day job, I don't need the money from this, I, I still think it's a bad call to undervalue yourself and undervalue the work and to undercut the cost of recording in your area, which is also not a great way to look to other engineers in your community. That's a pretty good way to make enemies amongst local engineers, and that's not something you want to do. So start recording, start charging for it, and keep doing this until you start to feel busy. If you're not busy, if you don't have people calling you and wanting to work with you, then you're probably not ready to go full-time. You want to get to that point of feeling busy like, I don't really have time to take on all the projects that want to work with me. Maybe you're recording on weekends or holidays or evenings. Maybe you're stretching yourself a little bit too thin. And just about that point when you start to feel the tension of, okay, I'm making a bit of money, I'm starting to get booked out pretty far, and I'm having to turn stuff down because I don't have any more time, 
but I want to do this more often. And I know if I could do it all day long, then I could get done faster and make more money, right? I would say that's probably the right time, at least in my experience. Or at the very least, it's time to start considering it. Another thing to keep in mind is that part-time in the audio world is possibly 20, 30, even 40 hours a week, whereas full-time is probably 40, 50, 60 hours a week, you know, Monday through Saturday, 10-hour days. So you can look at how often you're recording, maybe one day a week, maybe just Saturdays, right? And you can kind of gauge, like, do I have six times this business waiting for me, right? Because that's kind of what you might need if you want to go full-time. Are you booked out six weeks, you know, six Saturdays in a row? Are you booked out eight Saturdays in a row? Well, in a real-world situation, that might only last you two weeks. Now, it's not a perfect one-to-one -one because most people want to record on Fridays and Saturdays. So if you're busy every Friday and Saturday, that's pretty normal. But during the week, what are you going to be doing, right? If you're only booked out a couple weeks at a time, you know, then you might not be ready to go full-time yet. But if you're booked out a couple of months, then maybe you are. One more practical tip that I'll give you is to make sure to have some cash savings ready to go if you decide to go full-time, maybe three months of bills saved up. That way, if you have a slow month, you can take some from savings and it won't feel like the end of the world. And if you have a good month, you can replenish. I wish that I had done that earlier. Eventually, I did do this, but had I done it before, it would have made those first few years a lot more tolerable. Again, I know this is going to be different for different people. I know that I was lucky with my particular situation, with my very patient, very understanding and supportive parents and supportive girlfriend. And realize that I did audio for about five years before going full time, trying to do it with every spare minute of time I had. And when the time came, I kind of just knew it was the right time. Now, did I know it would work long term? No, of course not. It could have failed miserably. We never really know if it's going to work out, but there are signs. You know, if you're busy, if you can't keep up with demand, if you're booked for months and people are calling you wanting to work with you, you have to turn them down and you're making decent money on the stuff that you do work on. You know, if you're willing to take the risk, I would say it's worth considering. Number 10. And this one is a cry of exasperation, and I've been there. Why do I work so hard to make stuff sound good when the client sucks? Ah, yes, at this point in the path, we arrive at the bargaining stage of grief. <laughs> Here's the real answer. You work hard on the stuff because you agreed to take the project. That's why. Your job is to make the vision of the song come to life and do the best you can with it. That's the job description. That's why you work hard at it. You know, there's nothing in the job description about doing worse work because the client isn't that good. You know, we always try to do the best we can. Now, yes, it can feel very defeating when working with mediocre players or singers. It can feel like you're carrying the entire weight of the project on your back. But you're certainly not going to help the situation by slacking off and making the final product suck. In fact, you're for sure going to make it look worse, and it won't look good for anyone, for you, for the client, and, you know, that's not good. And I get it. It also sucks because as engineers, we know that the source is king, and we can only take someone from a C to an A. We can't really take them from an F to an A. We can take them maybe up a letter grade or two, but if they don't have it, they just don't have it. 
Now, that's not to say they won't ever have it. People can practice. People can take vocal lessons. People can get better. Of course, I have worked with some clients for 10 years and seen them advance leaps and bounds in that time. But, you know, it's not something that can be solved in an afternoon. Some of the most frustrating sessions are those in which you realize that the players or singers have, like, deeply ingrained bad habits that you cannot coach out of them, right? Like if a drummer can't play to a click track, that's not something that they can just learn right there in the session. Even if we had eight hours or 10 hours to do drums, that's not something you can learn in that time. It's something that you need practice doing. You need to do it for hours and hours, for months and months and months and possibly years to actually get good at, right? And that's really frustrating. And it can be very tempting in those moments to be like, all right, well, this person hasn't put in the work that is required to get a good sound, so I'm not going to put in the work required to get a good sound out of them. But that's not necessarily the best approach, you know? You still need to try. You still need to try to help them hear the click better, maybe add a shaker instead of just the beeps. Maybe that will help them. Um, maybe have them play along to another drum loop. Maybe have the click track cranked way up. Maybe pan the click to the right and pan the music to the left. You still need to try to get the best performance out of them that you can. You can't just throw in the towel and give up. Even when you notice that, okay, we're probably not going to get an amazing result today because they're just not that skilled of a player. You still need to try, right? And you still need to do multiple takes. You still need to treat it as if they were great. And you're still going to take multiple takes. You're still going to give them advice. Hey, hit your cymbals a little bit quieter. Hey, hit your kick and snare a little bit more consistently. Ask for what you need, right? And who knows, maybe they will be able to do that. Maybe they will kind of get focused and be able to hit their snare more consistently or hit their kick more consistently or dial back on the cymbals or play better to a click, depending on how you adjust for them, you know, depending on what types of tricks you can do to help get the most out of them. You still have to do that. And yes, at the end of the day, you may still end up using samples and you may still end up, you know, quantizing their entire performance, but at least you tried. As I've said, this business is heavily based on reputation. Sometimes the crappy bands have a lot of friends, a lot of friends that are much better musicians than they are. And if you do a bad job working with them or slack off because you don't feel like they're up to your standards, they will for sure remember that. And they'll tell their friends that you treated them like they were unworthy of good service. Now, going forward, you should ask yourself, why did you take that project to begin with if the client sucks? Maybe you didn't know or didn't realize. Maybe you took it because you needed the money. And trust me, in that case, I totally get it. I've taken tons of projects because I needed the money. So no judgment there. But I think it's important to recognize what you could do in the future to prevent having to take those projects or perhaps to secure yourself a better rate for working on more difficult projects like that. Maybe do a little more work ahead of time to vet the band and see how good they are. Even just spending an hour to check them out at a local bar might tell you everything you need to know. At the very least, do some creeping on their social media pages to see if you can find a video, a live video, or some previous recordings. Ask them for a demo before saying yes. I mean, these days, I basically don't agree to do a project without hearing a demo of some kind. I, I pretty much turn it down. I'm like, 
I will continue this conversation if you can get me a demo, even if it's an iPhone recording, like set your phone down at practice at rehearsal or in your bedroom. I, I got to hear something. That's something I wish that I would have adopted sooner because it has saved me a lot of problems. When I hear a band on an iPhone recording and I'm like, wow, they are not good. I can turn the project down. Now, yes, I realize that's a privilege and I am only able to do that because I've been doing this for 17 years. So I don't have to take every single project that contacts me, but I still take most of them. I just don't agree to them without hearing something first. Regardless, once you've agreed to take the project, there's not a lot you can do other than the best you can. I think it's important to be honest with yourself and recognize well, no matter what I do, I'm probably still not going to like this song because I just don't like this band or these players or these songs. <laughs> and at that point, you can try to just put that behind you and just try to make the production as good as possible. Find things about it that you like and try to do the best job that you can. Try to accomplish whatever the client wants and ultimately finish the project. I empathize with this one a lot because this is often the stage in your career where you have to admit to yourself that the source is king. And to some degree, you start to feel a little helpless because you realize that, wow, the outcome of my mixes, my recordings, my productions are primarily determined by the skill and creativity of the people who walk in the door. And that's a weird realization to face. I mean, what other technical career is like that? Right? I've said this on the podcast before, but you know, if you're a plumber or an electrician, your client's knowledge on the topic has nothing to do with whether or not you can do a good job. But really, audio engineering is a bit more like being a film director. It's kind of a group project. If the script sucks, it's going to be hard to get anyone to sign on to the project. If the actors suck, it doesn't matter how good the lighting is or how good the script is. If the score sucks, it can ruin the vibe of an entire film. If the visual effects suck, then people are going to bash it on social media and make fun of it. So many things depend on the hard work of a lot of people that aren't you, and that's really difficult to stomach. There's a lot of moving parts, and whether you like it or not, record making with clients is a group effort. So once you've taken the project, the only thing you can really control is you. You can try to help your clients as much as you can, and you can try to do your best. And like I said, you definitely should try every single project you work on, regardless if the band is terrible. You should definitely try to make it as good as you can. And yeah, maybe say no to that client next time they call you. But while you're in it, you have to see it through. Number 11, how long can I keep this up? Is this career sustainable? Now, this is the big brother crisis of the one you faced before, the why can't I get consistent work one. This one tends to happen after you've done it for a while. And maybe you've seen your income fluctuate a bit, sometimes better, sometimes worse. And you start feeling the fear start to bubble up again. You ask yourself, okay, I'm doing okay, but how sustainable is this career? Can I keep spending this much of my time doing this? Can I make much more money than I'm already making? Where's the ceiling? Can I keep up with inflation? Can I afford to keep expanding my studio or hiring people or buying gear? Am I actually making a profit? Are there enough musicians in this area to go around? What about the other studios in my area that have popped up or closed down? Am I making enough to save for the future, for retirement? There's a lot of serious questions attached to this crisis. 
And I distinctly remember facing this around 2016, which was the first year that I had ever made less than the previous year. And that really scared me. I'll be honest, I still have moments every year of asking myself, is this year going to be better than last year? Is the business still growing? What if I make less than last year? What does that mean? Now, aside from all of the other points we talked about on the earlier crisis about consistent money, let's assume that at this point, you're making at least okay money, and you're just not sure how sustainable it is long term. As I said before, it can take a long time to get to this point. I'd say it took me, like I said, about 10, 11 years to get to a point where I felt comfortable, like I could actually pay my bills without fear of missing one. But that's just the thing. To my knowledge, it takes almost every audio engineer a long time to get to this point. I remember seeing an interview with Ryan Hewitt, and he said that the secret to success as an audio engineer is just don't quit. Don't try to beat the competition. Try to outlast them. That it's an endurance race, not a sprint. The longer you do it, the better you get, the more you can charge, and the more competitors at your level drop out of the race. Sure, there will be new competitors, but again, it takes a long time to get good at this craft. So are the new people really that much of a competitor? Again, it's skill and experience-based and reputation-based. So the key is patience and persistence. Now, aside from the money aspect, there's the time-slash-energy aspect. As we've talked about, this job and craft can take an immense amount of time. So you may be asking yourself the how sustainable is this from that lens. And to that, I will say you definitely have to self-reflect on this one. You have to look at your mental health, your physical health, your well-being, your happiness, and try to be honest with yourself about it. If this job causes you a lot of mental stress or, or affects your health negatively, then maybe it's not sustainable for you at least not in its current state. Now, there may be steps you can take to change those things, anything from your diet to hours of operation, taking more time off, hiring assistants or interns to help. It's generally not just a binary system of this is sustainable, this is not sustainable. It's usually this is not sustainable if we continue on the current trajectory, but what if we tweak this or tweak that? And usually there are things you can do, at least try to do. I've definitely had to make some lifestyle changes and compromise to make this career work for me. And I've had to give up a lot and sacrifice a lot to do this as a career. For example, I work every single Saturday, and I have since I was a teenager. There's almost no getting around it. It's by far the most requested day for sessions. I also still work pretty long days. Nine or ten hour days are very normal for me, and they have been for most of my career. Some people may not be willing to do that, and that's fine, so long as they're honest with themselves about it. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I wish I had hired an assistant sooner, because that's been a massive help to me. And I also wish I would have said no to more things sooner. I wish I would have quit some of my side gigs sooner. Because even though I enjoyed them, and even though they made extra money, had I just focused on recording, focused on the studio only, I probably would have gotten more done there. You know, some people call this shiny object syndrome, where you're working through your business, you're an entrepreneur, and you think of all these other side hustles you can do to make more money. But most of the time, what happens is that you do five things, you know, kind of B plus, rather than doing one thing at an A plus. And if you just focus on that one thing that you're actually passionate about and actually good at, 
you'll probably end up better. And I wish I would have done that. I wish I wouldn't have taken all those other side gigs, uh, or at least I wish I would have quit them sooner because ultimately it just made things more complicated. And sure, I've had some good experiences. I've learned a lot of things, but at the same time, I exhausted myself. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, if I hire someone or if I quit my side gigs, then I won't make enough money. I just don't know about that anymore. I used to think that too, right? And now I actually have hard data about that because I just did all of that in the last couple of years. I quit pretty much all of my side gigs and I hired an assistant. And in fact, the two highest income years that I've ever had have been the last two years since hiring my assistant and quitting my side gigs. So I'm working fewer hours, I have more free time, I have an assistant to help me out during the day, and I'm making more than when I had those side gigs, right? So it's kind of strange. I can only deduce that having an assistant has helped me that much with productivity in the macro sense that I've been able to get those projects done quicker and easier, which essentially creates free time out of thin air. So for example, if having an assistant saves me just a few hours a day, an album that maybe used to take 20 sessions maybe now takes 15, and that's five days that I can book for something else. Days that wouldn't have existed had I not hired my assistant. Multiply that across a full year, across multiple albums, lots of EPs and singles, and clearly I've been able to work on more stuff while actually working fewer hours. It's wild, right? I mean, that is the power of scaling your business. So why do I bring up all that stuff about my assistant? Well, because at a certain point, I had asked myself, how sustainable is this? I'm exhausting myself. I'm working three side gigs, two side gigs, however many, and I'm working all the time in the studio. I just don't have any more time or energy. And when I go home to my wife, I'm just kind of a shell of a person. Like, that's not sustainable. And so I've had to make a lot of big changes in the last three, four, five years in my life. And that just comes from being honest with yourself. And before you let the fear consume you and before you worry all the time about how sustainable is this, will I keep doing this? How can I make profit? I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do this next year. Just take a breath, relax, and be thankful that you're doing it at all and that you've been able to do it this long. And just try to keep going. Try to figure out ways to get some of your time back. Make sure you check in with yourself about your mental health and your relationships and your happiness. None of us know what tomorrow is going to bring or how the industry is going to change. So we can't worry too much about the future. We can really only worry about improving things today for our situations and try to make intelligent moves that will set us up for long-term success while being honest with ourselves about how we really feel. If we're really happy doing this, if we're burnt out, if we need help, if we need to hire someone, if we need to talk to someone, or if we're on the path that's leading us where we want to go. So if you find yourself asking this question, how sustainable is this? Well, a lot of times I find that if you're asking yourself that question, then in its current state, it's not sustainable, right? Because you're asking the question. You're thinking to yourself like, man, how much longer can I put up with this? How much longer can I keep going like this? Is this going to last forever? And you're not necessarily asking because you're like, everything's perfect. How sustainable is it? You know, that's not usually the type of position we're in when we're asking that question. Um, but even if we are, again, it still goes back to like, we don't know. 
Um, and if you are asking because it's not in a sustainable place, then you need to be honest about those things and try to make changes in your life. But if you're asking because it is good right now and you're hoping, man, can I just keep doing this forever? Well, clearly you're on a path that's working. So just keep going forward and don't quit and outlast the competition. Number 12, why do all of my mixes sound the same? Okay, so this one is half philosophical and the other half is more practical. So let's start with the philosophical. So after a number of years of working, you might find yourself lacking in some creativity or lacking in originality or finding yourself doing the same things over and over, the same plug-in chains, the same mics, the same guitars, the same type of EQ moves. And you start to worry that this is making your stuff sound the same. I think the more important questions to ask yourself are, number one, are you actually doing anything consciously different to make things sound different? Are you trying different plugins? Are you trying different chains, different mics, different guitars, different techniques? Are you continuing to develop your ears and listen to new music and get new ideas? And if not, are you doing that out of laziness or are you burnt out or, you know, what is it? If it's out of laziness, I mean, trust me, I get it. It's easy to do things that you know will work, right? It's easy to rely on our anchors and tie ourselves down to things that keep us stable. But if you want to improve, you have to keep challenging yourself to try new things, to experiment. That being said, many of the big mixers out there use the same hardware chains and plug-in chains on stuff on lots of different mixes. So it's not necessarily uncommon or necessarily even a bad thing. Now, if you feel like you're out of ideas, then I highly recommend two practices. Number one, listen to music, right? If you ever feel like you're in a rut, literally just go to social media and ask your network to give you some suggestions for new music. You'll likely get a wide variety of responses, and that's good. I suggest listening to them all, even if it's not something you might normally pick. Listen to the productions and the ideas. Maybe certain things will stand out and inspire you. Number two, another great practice is to read books about music, music production, and engineering. A few books that I recommend that will specifically help you tap into some creativity are Recording Unhinged by Sylvia Massey, Unlocking Creativity by Michael Beinhorn, the Zen and the Art of series by Mixerman. All of them are great. Zen and the Art of Mixing, Zen and the Art of Recording, Producing, and The Creative Act by Rick Rubin. Anyway, aside from the feeling that your stuff sounds the same or that you're in a creative rut, another really good question to ask yourself is, are your mixes getting better? That's still really important. And if they are, then you're still making progress. I think it's pretty rare that people actually get worse over time. So chances are you're still getting better even if you feel like you're in a creative rut. Another thing that's really important to ask is, am I working with the same type of clients over and over? And if that's the case, I mean, you can't really be too hard on yourself. It's just a reality that like a lot of pop songs sound similar and a lot of country songs sound similar and a lot of metal songs sound similar. And part of it is that like, that's what the client wants. They want to sound like this or that. And that is just kind of a reality of the business. And if you've done it long enough and you've worked on enough pop songs or country songs or rock songs or metal songs, yeah, you will run into similar sounds time and time again. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But you still should try to challenge yourself to get a better thing, a new thing, a creative thing. What can you get that's just a little bit different? Now, you shouldn't necessarily try to force it on the project if it's not really 
going that direction. But still, you have to try to push the envelope a little bit. Now, for a more practical answer to why do my mixes sound the same, you know, aside from using the same techniques and the same mics and the same chains, which can definitely contribute to that, one thing I've learned in my career is that the more notable character your recording environment has, the more it will impart itself on your recordings, for better or worse. I've found that by making my live room a bit deader and more neutral over the years, this has actually really helped my recordings. Initially, I thought that I wanted a really large, lively live room, right? Because that's the sound on so many of my favorite recordings, particularly on drums. But over time, I realized that having a more neutral, more controlled recording area actually made my recordings have less character in the right way. It's strange to hear myself say that aloud because I never thought I would be saying it. But the truth is, I'm not Blackbird or Oceanway. You know, if I had a large facility where I had four different live rooms and multiple chambers and ISO booths and dedicated piano rooms and acoustic guitar rooms and all of this stuff, then sure, it might make sense to have each room, you know, have its own unique character because you have those options. You can record in the room that suits the vibe the best. But if you're like me and like most project studio owners, you have one room, maybe a separate control room, maybe an ISO booth, you know, separate live room control room, and that's it. And you have to make that work for everything you do. Thus, I've made my room a little bit drier, more controlled, and I've gotten used to modifying the acoustic environment a lot more during sessions with gobos, blankets, movable traps, and so on to change the character of the room on recording. The less room involvement, the more isolated the sound is. And yes, that does mean you'll need to create the ambience and, you know, use reverbs and delays and samples and things like that. But in many ways, it can actually end up sounding better and working better in a mix. Not always, of course. There's still something about drums in a big room or strings in a big room or piano in a nice, lively room that, you know, it's hard to escape. They do sound good. They sound like the natural environment of those instruments. But for things like vocals or a lot of times acoustic guitar, electric guitar, and a number of other things, I do find I prefer them in a more isolated environment. Another factor when it comes to mixes sounding the same is your monitoring environment. There are very few arguments for having a control room that's not, you know, controlled. <laughs> it's certainly not impossible to work in a larger, livelier room, but having a heavily controlled, highly accurate mix space will ensure that you're truly hearing the tracks as they are. I remember having this experience years ago when I was working with a producer from Nashville. When the project was over, I asked him if he had any feedback on the tracks that we recorded and if there was anything he struggled with or anything I could have done better. And the first thing he said without hesitation was, everything is too roomy, everything's too dark. And to me, that's not what it sounded like at all. It was strange. You know, I, I pulled up the tracks and I listened to them. I was like, man, I don't know. They don't sound too roomy to me. So after talking to some of my peers, I got the advice to try putting on headphones and listening to my stuff in isolation, essentially removing my control room from the equation. And as soon as I did, I realized that everything was too roomy. Turns out my control room was not controlled enough. My decay times were far too long, which is something I had just gotten used to. And just as Floyd Toole has researched, with enough time, our ears in conjunction with our brains have some ability to sort of ignore the room, but a microphone doesn't really have that ability. So it may be the case that your control room environment is effectively masking your ability 
to hear what the ambience is on your recordings. So I suggest putting on some headphones and try to listen to how much ambience is really on your raw tracks. After a little while of working on headphones, take them off and listen in your control room. You may realize that your control room was not as dead or not as controlled as you thought. It's a bit jarring to hear this, but I went through the same thing. Once you audit your sounds this way, it can inform you on a path forward. Number 13. Do I still enjoy doing this at all? This is a tough one. Um, this one will likely come up multiple times along the path, usually after really tough projects or after working with difficult people. When this thought comes to us, there's often sort of an instinctive response of, well, of course I like doing this, but then we really start to think about it. And it's a healthy thing to think about, even though it's difficult. I know a lot of people who have gotten in and out of the audio industry in my lifetime, some friends of mine, some people get burned out, some never really figure out how to make money at it, or they just make bad decisions with money, but some just fall out of love with it. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I just need to figure out how to work on better projects and have more highs and fewer lows. And sure, that is, generally speaking, a good practice to work towards. Don't take projects that you think are going to be lows, because the lows can indeed suck. And even as low as the lows can feel, the highs can feel ten times as high. And hopefully, some of you out there know the feeling, that feeling of working on a project that you're actually super proud of, where things just went right. The songs were good, the musicians were good, the parts and tones were good, the mix was good, you nailed the mix. It's a really good feeling and immensely satisfying. But what about next month or two months from now? As soon as a project is done, it's not like the mortgage bill stops coming. You've got to keep moving forward, and I can guarantee you that not every project will be a high. I can also say that not every project will be a low, but because of that natural fluctuation, it can drastically affect your mood, your happiness, your home life, or even your ability to do your job if the finish line is all you're focusing on. What I'm getting at is, despite how much of a cliche it is, life is truly much more about the journey than it is about the destination, and so is this job. If you don't learn to love the journey with all of its highs and lows, all of the good and the bad, then you probably won't love the job long term, and there's a high probability of burnout. The people I know who stick with this for the long term are obsessed with the craft. They're obsessed with taking a song from point A to point B and doing their best to improve it however they can. They're not obsessed with stream counts or the accolades or the money or any other destination on this path. They love the path itself. They love the struggle, the challenge. They still haven't scratched that itch that they had when they first started, right? How can I make this sound better than yesterday? They're enjoying the journey itself. And that's kind of how it has to be. As the famous quote goes, a good traveler has no fixed plans and no intent on arriving. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have goals, but goals aren't necessarily destinations or finish lines. Often they're just milestones along the path. It's not like people win a Grammy and then stop making records. Usually, it's the opposite. Winning a Grammy typically fuels the fire even more, and they end up working with better artists with bigger budgets and will likely be up for more Grammys in the future. Success tends to beget more success. And, realistically speaking, there's no finish line as an audio engineer. It's not like there's some definitive prize at the end of the rainbow, like make a thousand records and then you win, or win five Grammys and you get to retire. 
or get on the billboard charts and we show up with a giant check and a trophy. There was never really a finish line to begin with. It was all a myth. We determine our own finish line. So if you're questioning whether or not you actually like this or not, I would try to ask yourself if you actually enjoy the journey or could see yourself learning to love the journey, or if you're focusing too heavily on destinations, on finish lines. I would also ask yourself the more practical questions like, are there bad habits or practices that I can change to make me enjoy the journey more, to make me enjoy the day-to-day? Can I hire someone to help take some of those burdens off of me? What parts of the job do I enjoy the most or dislike the most? These are all important questions on which to self-reflect. And regardless of the answers, you're sure to learn a lot about yourself in the process. I'm still asking myself these questions all the time because I do love the journey, but there are definitely parts of the journey that I don't like. There are day-to-day things that I think, man, that really takes me a lot of time and sucks a lot of energy out of my creative process. Is that something I can have my assistant do? Is that something he'd want to do? Is that something he has the skills to do? Can I teach him to do it? Or is that something that my clients really want from me? And am I okay with that? I'm asking myself, you know, what projects do I enjoy working on the most and why? What about those projects makes me enjoy working on them? Is it just because the artist is super talented or is it a certain genre? Is it a certain type of band or a certain, you know, artist? Or do I enjoy working on uh, projects with session players or not with session players? Like, what are the patterns, right? Like, what are the things that really make me enjoy the job? What I'm trying to get across is that even if you don't necessarily love the journey right now, you can find ways to love the journey. You are the one who's in control of that journey. So you can make changes in your life to make that journey more enjoyable. For example, if you love mixing and you don't like working with other people in the room, what changes can you make to help push your career towards just mixing? Is that something you can do? Is that something you really want to do? Would that make you happier? You know, at one point in my life, I thought that I would be doing a lot more mixing by myself. But in fact, over time, I realized that not only did I kind of enjoy recording more, it was more of a challenge for me, especially as I continued to find example after example of how the source is king and the raw recorded tracks make the biggest difference. You know, I just felt like I was making more of a difference if I was the one recording it and I had a lot more control and it was more exciting to me than just mixing by myself. And hey, at least in my area, that was more of a need anyway. To this day, I still make the bulk of my money on recording as opposed to just mixing. So again, you are in control of this path. You can decide where you want to go, but you really have to look at yourself, look at the things you enjoy, the things you don't enjoy. Ask yourself some difficult questions. It may be true that you just don't really enjoy it that much anymore, in which case you can do something else. You don't have to keep doing audio if you don't enjoy it anymore. You're probably going to be miserable, even if you're good at it. If you hate it, if you're just totally burnt out, then maybe you should take a break and do something else. But if you're like me and you're still pretty obsessed with it, but there are definitely things that kind of irk you and you wish that you could change, then you're going to have to ask yourself, what are those things and what steps can I take to change them? Number 14, can I keep up with trends and what people want? Can I stay relevant? 
This is a question I've wrestled with a few times in my career, and each time it's led to some interesting discoveries. I feel like I started asking this question fairly early on. I started to get a little worried that I wasn't going to get to work on the types of music that I liked the most, either because there weren't enough artists in my area that made that kind of music, or because I wasn't good enough to do it, as well as other engineers in the area. And to some degree, both of those things were true. But I kept pressing on, and more work came. In fact, early on, I pretty much said yes to everyone who contacted me. But then I had friends and colleagues advise against that, saying, you know, it's better to specialize and work on stuff that you like. Now, there's an interesting dichotomy to that statement. I both agree and disagree. On one hand, yes, I do believe your best work will come from when you're working on things that you actually like. However, practically speaking, we don't always know all the things that we like. We may think we do, but for example, we don't know whether we like steak until we have steak or scotch or coffee or kimchi or whatever it may be. So in my opinion, it's a narrow perspective to say I will only work on things that I currently know and like. It also sort of guarantees that you'll have a narrower skill set as an engineer. The less stuff you work on, the less experience you have. You might get really skilled at working on punk rock, but what about when one of your punk rock clients wants to add an acoustic guitar to a song? Do you know how to record acoustic guitar? Have you ever recorded it? Or what about when the punk scene in your area dies out? Will your career die with it? This also kind of goes back to the idea of should I move to a bigger music city? You know, I've seen it happen where people have moved to hip-hop areas or rock areas or places that have sort of a historic scene in one genre or another, and then that genre kind of fades away for one reason or another. And you can't necessarily bank on that lasting forever. So in reality, I think especially early on, it's better to try to say yes to everything because you don't necessarily even know your specialty yet. You may know your personal preferences and your own biases, but that doesn't mean that's actually the music that you will be the most adept at recording. For example, Nashville producer Jay Joyce came from the rock side of things, but now he does some of the biggest country records in the world. It's specifically because of his roots that he's able to give his country productions a unique spin that people clearly love. Now, as time goes on, I do think it's important to learn the art of saying no. You know, you do have to start saying no to certain projects, but I think that's more about saying no to things that either A, you don't understand at all, or B, you don't like at all, or C, projects with less skilled musicians that are going to be more difficult to work with regardless of the style. However, if you hear something that you like and there are clearly some skilled players involved and you understand it, but it's just something new that you haven't worked on before, I say absolutely jump on it. It's a perfect opportunity to expand your skill set. Anyway, back to the original question. Can I keep up with trends and what people want? You know, trends are strange. They tend to go in waves, and sometimes those waves can last a long time, and sometimes they die really quickly. And often they repeat themselves. 
I've told this story on the podcast before, but, you know, when I started, I was trying to learn how to record the types of tones on all my favorite records, many of which were 90s or early 2000s rock records, as well as, you know, a mix of some great singer-songwriter stuff and folk stuff, acoustic music mixed in. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to know everything about how to get those drum sounds, those big electric guitar sounds, those Jerry Finn guitar sounds, you know? But also, those amazing acoustic guitar sounds and piano sounds sounds and beautiful folk records, you know, and just about the time I started to get good enough to be able to get those sounds, which was probably seven years in, well, nobody wanted those sounds anymore. (laughs) Everything went really poppy, really produced, super dead sampled drums, super clean electric guitars, and very little acoustic guitar unless it was country music. Suddenly I realized, man, I know almost nothing about synths or MIDI or how to get good pop guitar sounds or how to use amp sims or how to make a vocal sound like a pop vocal. And I'll be honest, I also realized that I'd probably been sort of unconsciously avoiding it, you know, and probably pushed a few artists in a certain direction that maybe they didn't want to go to because of my bias, right? Because of my lack of skill in an area. For example, like I, I might have worked with an artist who wanted a more synth-driven sound, but because I didn't really understand synths, then maybe I pushed the project sort of unconsciously to sounding a bit more organic or being more guitar-driven because that was my taste. And for some people, that realization might not seem like a big deal. Some might think, well, you know, people are hiring me for my sound, so, you know, they got what they asked for. But that's not how I see it. In fact, this realization makes me very, very uneasy. I didn't get into this to impart my sound on people's music. I got into this because I like recording music and I like getting sounds and making records. I want the artist's vision to come through, not mine. After all, one of the reasons I got into recording myself is because I had experiences with other producers and engineers where they changed my sound or my band's sound and it drove me crazy. They didn't care what I wanted. They were trying to get their sound, not mine. So I never wanted to be that. So when I realized this, I decided to lean the opposite direction really hard. I bought a bunch of virtual instruments like Native Instruments Complete and Omnisphere and Arturia stuff. I bought MIDI keyboards. I bought samples and loop packs. I bought new plugins and I tried to learn new techniques for working on more poppy music. I watched YouTube videos and took some courses, and I tried to learn what types of techniques that people in the pop and hip-hop and electronic genres are using. I also said yes to projects that I might normally have turned down, and I tried really hard to understand what the client wanted, even when it was difficult, even when I felt like I was totally out of my comfort zone and didn't really know what I was doing. And I'm glad I did, because we've been in this poppy trend for like 10 years now. It seems like every genre has gotten more poppy. Everything from hip-hop to metal to punk to singer-songwriter stuff, so much of it has pop elements now. And if you don't know how to make heavy-tuned, bright, airy pop vocals and you don't know how to use vocal line or you don't know how to get that bright, airy Taylor Swift vocal or 80s-inspired synth sounds or guitar sounds or how to edit MIDI, you won't be able to work on a lot of music out there. Now, something that's funny is that I've recently started working with some younger artists, you know, truly Gen Z artists, and they're not interested in pop music as much. They're obsessed with certain artists like Elliot Smith and Nirvana. And that's an interesting change because that's exactly the type of stuff I was listening to when I got into recording. 
90s rock and singer-songwriter stuff. And if you look at the fashion trends for people under 25 right now, they're also very heavily 90s influenced. So are we about to have a 90s rock resurgence? I don't know, but all I can say is I hope so, and if so, I'm ready. Anyway, to bring this back a bit closer to the point of the question, can I stay relevant? Can I keep up with what people want? The answer, as you may be able to guess, is yes. It's more of a question of will you? Will you take that project? Will you step out of your comfort zone? Will you do research and learn what people are doing for a modern production? Whatever modern means. Will you invest in new tools, new plugins, new instruments that people are using so that you can keep up with the times? Will you listen to new music and try to be aware of what people are listening to these days so when they come to you with references, you're not totally clueless? Will you be open to trying new things, or will you not? I'll end this one with a famous quote from David Bowie. If you feel safe in the area that you're working in, you're not working in the right area. Always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of being in. Go a little bit out of your depth, and when you don't feel that your feet are quite touching the bottom, you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. Number 15. I've accomplished a lot of my goals. Now what? Now, this probably isn't the last existential crisis that you or I will face, but this is probably the most recent one that I have faced personally, and it's a bit of a strange one. In 2017, I celebrated 10 years in business. I was talking to my wife, and she asked me, well, did you accomplish everything that you'd hoped for in your first 10 years? I sat there and thought about it, and honestly, I had. All I ever wanted to do was record music full-time, work on cool stuff, pay my bills, have a studio. That's it. I, I didn't really have any grand goals of topping the charts or winning Grammys or having my own line of plugins. I just wanted to do this as a career. There's really nothing else I wanted. And honestly, it was kind of an odd feeling. On one hand, I felt proud that I had accomplished what I set out to do, but on the other hand, I felt like, hmm, is, is that it? I mean, I, I did it, but what now? What I was experiencing, I think, was the journey versus destination debate in real time. I realized that I had sort of reached my destination, but I knew I wasn't done. I knew I still wanted to keep going. This is a perfect example of why earlier I said that goals aren't really destinations, they're more like milestones. You reach a new mountain peak only to realize there's a thousand more mountain peaks in front of you, as well as many, many valleys. I thought about it for many weeks and months after that. It was a strange feeling of satisfaction, but I also felt a bit lost. I felt like I didn't know where to go from there. I kept coming back to the answer, well, I guess I'll just keep going but it still felt kind of aimless. It felt like reaching the top of Mount Everest only to have someone at the top being like, oh, no, no, this isn't Everest. And then you're like, wait, so where is Everest from here? And they're just like, I don't know, that's your problem. <laughs> and, you know, at first it seemed really scary, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, this is still a really awesome achievement. And even though there's another million other mountain peaks ahead of me, at least I know the path can keep going and that it's not the end. It was just another milestone. I mean, after all, that's where the word comes from. The ancient Romans used to place stone obelisks spaced one mile apart on the roads and paths during the Roman Empire, 
And the term mile, as I understand it, comes from the Latin mil or milla, which means a thousand. And the Roman army used to walk a thousand double paces to mark their milestones, which actually works out to be like plus minus 30 or 40 feet of our current definition of a mile. Anyway, uh, (laughs) after reaching this milestone and taking a moment to look at my options, I decided that it was probably a good idea to start thinking about some new goals. After all, I do think goals are important. They help give you some direction, a sense of purpose, and a sense that you're actually working towards something rather than just sort of aimlessly wandering. But if I still don't really care about having a song on the Billboard charts or winning Grammys, then and I don't, then what kind of goals are there in the music industry? So I started asking myself some very different questions. Things like, am I happy? Am I healthy? How's my stress level? Am I spending enough time with the people I care about? Am I wasting time on things that don't actually make my life better? What parts of the job don't I like or do I like? Am I saving enough for retirement? Can I afford to say no to more things? Is that something I want to do? Am I making time to do non-audio-related things in my life that I want to do, like hobbies or traveling or reading or writing, cooking? Do I dream of having a bigger studio someday? Is that something I want? Do I want to try to design a bigger studio or move to a bigger spot? You know, how can I make a lasting impact on my local music community? Am I doing that now, or is there something more I could do? And probably most importantly, if I could design the perfect day, what would that look like to me? It seems strange to literally sit down and ask myself, maybe for the first time in 10 years, am I happy? I felt like I'd been going nonstop for so long trying to achieve this thing, just grinding and grinding and trying to make a good living and pay my bills, that I hadn't really stopped to consider whether or not I was still happy doing all of it. Well, as it turns out, there were a lot of things in my life that I wasn't happy about, but they were things that I knew I could work on and things that could be better. I still loved audio and was still very grateful to be doing what I was doing, but if I knew that thing XYZ was different or these things were different, then I'd probably be happier. And again, this comes back to self-reflection and practicing being honest with yourself. And I'll be honest with all of you, even today, seven years later, I still don't have all the answers to these questions figured out. I'm still working on a lot of them, but I've made some really positive changes in my life. Like I said, I quit a lot of side gigs, I've quit teaching, I quit gigging out mostly, and even though those things paid and I enjoyed doing them, I'd rather spend more time focusing on studio stuff, and I'd rather have more time with my wife, with my friends, I'd rather have more time to work on other hobbies, to work on the podcast, to read, or just sit around and do nothing. And as you know, I hired an assistant, which has been super helpful and super awesome. In 2022, I was able to go on a great 10-year anniversary vacation with my wife, and that's something I really needed, something that was really special that I may not have made time for in the past. Suffice it to say, I've been reflecting a lot more in the last six or seven years about all of these things. And I'm trying to set new goals and be honest with myself and true to myself and trying every single day to enjoy the journey. So if you encounter this crisis in your life where you're saying, okay, I've accomplished a lot of the things I wanted to, but now what? That would probably be my advice to you is to look at your life and set new goals for yourself. And don't think so limited just about studio stuff or audio stuff or music stuff. Think even bigger. Think bigger picture. Think your happiness, your well-being, the future, your kids, your family. What are those goals? Have you reached those goals? Can audio help you reach those goals? Is audio not really a part of those goals? 
You know, it might be hard to confront those things, but if we're practicing being honest with ourselves, I think that's the way forward. Because if we don't have any goals, then we're just going to keep showing up to work every day and doing the same thing with no end in sight. And, you know, that's certainly nothing wrong with that per se, but it is a little depressing. <laughs> it does feel a little bit aimless, right? We want to be working towards something. And I think just saying, I want to keep making better recordings is, you know, maybe not a big enough goal. I used to think it was big enough for me, but I don't know if it is in the grand scheme. I think it's important for us to zoom out and think about our families and friends and loved ones and our communities and what kind of impact we're making on all of those things. And, you know, of course we have to think about our career and what we want to do next, but I think the questions start to look very different, you know? You might have some personal goal of saying, like, I want to make this much money, and, you know, sure, that's certainly a fine goal, but what happens when you get that goal? You know, what then? At some point or another, you'll probably have to face the fact that you're going to have to ask yourself, are you happy? Is this it? You know, is this all there is? Or is there something more? This is why I said that probably the most important question I ask myself is if I could design my dream day, what would the perfect day look like? And where am I now compared to that perfect day? And like I said, you might not be able to have the answers right away. But if you're honest with yourself and you keep asking, you keep searching, you will learn some things. I hope you've enjoyed this set of episodes about the top 15 existential crises of audio engineers. I know it was a little different than my normal episodes, but I get these kinds of questions a lot. You know, I get them from podcast listeners, and I used to get them a lot from students, these big sort of life-changing questions that, you know, people feel alone. They feel like nobody else can help them in this career except for someone else who has lived it. So that's why I wanted to make this episode, and I hope it has been helpful for you, and I hope it's made you feel a little bit less alone because, like I said at the beginning, this career can feel very isolated and it can feel like nobody else understands what it's like. But, you know, I've been there and I hope this episode has helped you feel a little bit seen. If you have questions or comments, please send them to recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to join the Discord. The link is in the show notes, as well as a link to our Patreon, where you can become a member and support this podcast every time we come out with an episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. See ya.